Chapter Three of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Home in the Coulee. Our post office was in the village of Onalaska, situated at the mouth of the Black River, which came down out of the wide forest lands of the north. It was called a boom town for the reason that booms, or yards for holding pine logs, laced the quiet bayou and supplied several large mills with timber. Busy saws clamored from the islands, and great rafts of planks and lath and shingles were made up and floated down into the Mississippi and on to southern markets. It was a rude, rough little camp, filled with raftsmen, loggers, mill-hands, and boomsmen. Saloons abounded, and deeds of violence were common. But to me it was a poem. From its position on a high plateau, it commanded a lovely southern expanse of shimmering water bounded by purple bluffs. The spires of La Crosse rose from the smoky distance, and steamships hoarsely giving voice suggested illimitable reaches of travel. Some day I hoped my father would take me to that shining marketplace whereto he carried all our grain. In this village of Onalaska, lived my grandfather and grandmother Garland and their daughter Susan, whose husband, Richard Bailey, a quiet, kind man, was held in deep affection by us all. Of course, he could not quite measure up to the high standards of David and William, even though he kept a store and sold candy, for he could neither kill a bear, nor play the fiddle, nor shoot a gun, much less turn handsprings or tame a wild horse but we liked him notwithstanding his limitations and were always glad when he came to visit us even at this time i recognized the wide differences which separated the mcclintocks from the garlands the fact that my father's people lived to the west and in a town helped to emphasize the divergence all the mcclintocks were farmers but grandfather garland was a carpenter by trade and a leader in his church which was to him a club a forum, and a commercial exchange. He was a native of Maine, and proud of the fact. His eyes were keen and gray, his teeth fine and white, and his expression stern. His speech was neat and nipping. As a workman he was exact, and his tools were always in perfect order. In brief, he was a Yankee, as concentrated a bit of New England as was ever transplanted to the border, hopelessly sought in all his eastern ways. He remained the doubter, the critic, all his life. We always spoke of him with formal precision as Grandfather Garland, never as Grandad or Grandpap, as we did in alluding to Hugh McClintock, and his long prayers, pieces of elaborate oratory, wearied us, while those of Grandad, which had the extravagance, the lyrical abandon of poetry, profoundly pleased us grandfather's church was a small white building in the edge of the village grandad's place of worship was a vision a cloud-built temple a house not made with hands the contrast between my grandmothers was equally wide harriet garland was tall and thin with a dark and serious face she was an invalid and confined to a chair which stood in the corner of her room on the walls within reach of her hand hung many small pockets, so ordered that she could obtain her sewing materials without rising. 
She was always at work when I called, but it was her habit to pause and discover in some one of her receptacles a piece of candy or a stick of licorice root which she gave to me as a reward for being a good boy. She was always making needle rolls and thimble boxes, and no doubt her skill helped to keep the family fed and clothed. Notwithstanding all divergence in the characters of Grandmother Garland and Grandmother McClintock, we held them both in almost equal affection. Serene, patient, bookish, Grandmother Garland brought to us, as to her neighbors in this rude river port, some of the best qualities of intellectual Boston, and from her lips we acquired many of the precepts and proverbs of our pilgrim forebears. Her influence upon us was distinctly literary. She gloried in New England traditions, and taught us to love the poems of Whittier and Longfellow. It was she who called us to her knee, and told us sadly, yet benignly, of the death of Lincoln, expressing only pity for the misguided assassin. She was a constant advocate of charity, piety, and learning. Always poor, and for many years a cripple, I never heard her complain, and no one, I think, ever saw her face clouded with a frown. Our neighbors in Green's Coulee were all Native American, and, the first and nearest, Al Randall and his wife and son, we saw often and on the whole liked, but the Whitwells, who lived on the farm above us, were a constant source of comedy to my father. Old Port, as he was called, was a mild-mannered man who would have made very little impression on the community but for his wife, a large and rather unkempt person, who assumed such manlike freedom of speech that my father was never without an amusing story of her doings. She swore in vigorous pioneer fashion and dominated her husband by force of lung power as well as by a certain painful candor. Port, you're an old fool! she often said to him in our presence. It was her habit to apologize to her guests, as they took their seats at her abundant table. Well now, folks, I'm sorry, but there ain't a blank thing in this house fit for a dog to eat. Expecting, of course, to have everyone cry out, Oh, Mrs. Whitwell, this is a splendid dinner, which they generally did. But once my father took her completely aback by rising resignedly from the table, Come, Belle, said he to my mother. Let's go home. I'm not going to eat food not fit for a dog. The rough old woman staggered under this blow, but quickly recovered. Dick Garland, you blank fool! Sit down or I'll fetch a swipe with the broom. In spite of her profanity and ignorance, she was a good neighbor, and in time of trouble no one was readier to relieve any distress in the coulee. However, it was upon Mrs. Randall and the widow Green that my mother called for aid, and I do not think Mrs. Whitwell was ever quite welcome even at our quilting bees, for her loud voice silenced every other, and my mother did not enjoy her vulgar stories. Yes, I can remember several quilting bees, and I recall molding candles, and that our company light was a large kerosene lamp, in the glass globe of which a strip of red flannel was coiled. Probably this was merely a device to lengthen out the wick, but it made a memorable spot of color in the room, just as the watch-spring gong in the clock gave off a sound of fairy music to my ear. 
I don't know why the ring of that coil had such a wondrous appeal, but I often climbed upon a chair to rake its spirals with a nail in order that I might float away on its dying fall. Life was primitive in all the homes of the coulee. Money was hard to get. We always had plenty to eat, but little in the way of luxuries. We had few toys except those we fashioned for ourselves, and our garments were mostly homemade. I have heard my father say, Bell could go to town with me, buy the calico for a dress, and be wearing it for supper. But I fear that even this did not happen very often. Her dress-up gowns, according to certain precious old tintypes, indicate that clothing was for her only a sort of uniform. And yet I will not say this made her unhappy. Her face was always smiling. She knit all our socks, made all our shirts and suits. She even carded and spun wool, in addition to her housekeeping, and found time to help on our kites and bows and arrows. Month by month, the universe in which I lived lightened and widened. In my visits to Onalaska, I discovered the great Mississippi River and the Minnesota Bluffs. The light of knowledge grew stronger. I began to perceive forms and faces which had been hidden in the dusk of babyhood. I heard more and more of La Crosse, and out of the mist-filled lower valley the booming roar of steamboats suggested to me distant countries and the sea. My father believed in service. At seven years of age I had regular duties. I brought firewood to the kitchen and broke nubbins for the calves and shelled corn for the chickens. I have a dim memory of helping him and grandfather split oak blocks into rafting pins in the kitchen. This seems incredible to me now, and yet it must have been so. In summer Harriet and I drove the cows to pasture and carried Switchel to the men in the hayfields by means of a jug hung in the middle of a long stick. Haying was a delightful season to us, for the scythes of the men occasionally tossed up clusters of beautiful strawberries, which we joyfully gathered. I remember with a special pleasure the delicious shortcakes which my mother made of the wild fruit, which we picked in the warm, odorous grass along the edge of the meadow. Harvest time also brought a pleasing excitement, something unwonted, something like entertaining visitors, which compensated for the extra work demanded of us. The neighbors usually came in to help, and life was a feast. There was, however, an ever-present menace in our lives, the snake. During midsummer months, blue racers and rattlesnakes swarmed, and the terror of them often chilled our childish hearts. Once Harriet and I, with little Frank in his cart, came suddenly upon a monster diamondback rattler sleeping by the roadside. In our mad efforts to escape, the cart was overturned and the baby scattered in the dust almost within reach of the snake. As soon as she realized what had happened, Harriet ran back bravely, caught up the child, and brought him safely away. Another day, as I was riding on the load of wheat sheaves, one of the men, in pitching the grain to the wagon, lifted a rattlesnake with his fork. I saw it writhing in the bottom of the sheaf and screamed out, A snake! A snake! It fell across the man's arm, but slid harmlessly to the ground, and he put a tine through it. As it chanced to be just dinner-time, he took it with him to the house, and fastened it down near the door of a coop, 
in which an old hen and her brood of chickens were confined. I don't know why he did this, but it threw the mother hen into such paroxysms of fear that she dashed herself again and again upon the slats of her house. It appeared that she comprehended to the full the terrible power of the writhing monster. Perhaps it was this same year that one of the men discovered another enormous yellowback in the barnyard, one of the largest ever seen on the farm, and killed it just as it was moving across an old barrel. I cannot now understand why it tried to cross the barrel, but I distinctly visualized the brown and yellow band it made as it lay for an instant just before the bludgeon fell upon it, crushing it and the barrel together. He was thicker than my leg and glistened in the sun with sinister splendor. As he hung limp over the fence, a warning to his fellows, it was hard for me to realize that death still lay in his square jaws and poisonous fangs. Innumerable garter snakes infested the marsh, and black snakes inhabited the edges of the woodlands. But we were not so much afraid of them. We accepted them as unavoidable companions in the wild. They would run from us. Bears and wildcats we held in real terror, though they were considered denizens of the darkness, and hence not likely to be met with if one kept to the daylight. The hoop-snake was quite as authentic to us as the blue racer, although no one had actually seen one. Din Green's cousin's uncle had killed one in Michigan, and a man over the ridge had once been stung by one that came rolling down the hill with his tail in his mouth. But Din's cousin's uncle, when he saw the one coming toward him, had stepped aside quick as lightning, and the serpent's sharp fangs had buried themselves so deep in the bark of a tree that he could not escape. Various other of the myths common to American boyhood were held in perfect faith by Din and Ellis and Ed, myths which made every woodland path an ambush and every marshy spot a place of evil. Horsehairs would turn to snakes if left in the spring, and a serpent's tail would not die till sundown. Once on the high hillside, I started a stone rolling, which as it went plunging into a hazel thicket, thrust out a deer, whose flight seemed fairly miraculous to me. He appeared to drift along the hillside like a bunch of thistle-down, and I took a singular delight in watching him disappear. Once my little brother and I, belated in our search for the cows, were far away on the hills when night suddenly came upon us. I could not have been more than eight years old, and Frank was five. This incident reveals the fearless use our father made of us. True, we were hardly a mile from the house, but there were many serpents on the hillsides and wildcats in the cliffs, and eight is pretty young for such a task. We were following the cows through the tall grass and bushes, in the dark. When father came to our rescue, and I do not recall being sent on a similar expedition thereafter, I think mother protested against the danger of it. Her notions of our training were less rigorous. I never hear a cowbell of a certain timbre that I do not relive in some degree the terror and despair of that hour on the mountain, when it seemed that my world had suddenly slipped away from me. Winter succeeds summer abruptly in my memory. Behind our house rose a sharp ridge down which we used to coast. Over this hill fierce winds blew the snow, and wonderful, diamonded drifts covered the yard. 
and sometimes father was obliged to dig deep trenches in order to reach the barn. On winter evenings he shelled corn by drawing the ears across a spade resting on a wash tub, and we children built houses of the cobs while mother sewed carpet rags or knit our mittens. Quilting bees of an afternoon were still recognized social functions, and the spread quilt on its frame made a gorgeous tent under which my brother and I camped on our way to Colorado. Lath swords and tin-pan drums remained a part of our equipment for a year or two. One stormy winter day, Edwin Randall, riding home in a sleigh behind his uncle, saw me in the yard and, picking an apple from an open barrel beside which he was standing, threw it at me. It was a very large apple, and as it struck the drift it disappeared, leaving a round deep hole. Delving there, I recovered it, and as I brushed the rime from its scarlet skin, it seemed the most beautiful thing in this world. From this vividly remembered delight, I deduced the fact that apples were not very plentiful in our home. My favorite place in wintertime was directly under the kitchen stove. It was one of the old-fashioned, high-stepping breed, with long hind legs and an arching belly, and as the oven was on top, the space beneath the arch offered a delightful den for a cat, a dog, or a small boy, and I was usually to be found there, lying on my stomach spelling out the continued stories which came to us in the county paper, for I was born with a hunger for print. We had few books in our house. Aside from the Bible, I remember only one other, a thick black volume filled with gaudy pictures of cherries and plums, and portraits of ideally fat and prosperous sheep, pigs, and cows. It must have been a farmer's annual or state agricultural report for it contained in the midst of its dry prose occasional poems like I Remember, I Remember, The Old Armchair, and other pieces of a domestic or rural nature. I was especially moved by the old armchair, and although some of the words and expressions were beyond my comprehension, I fully understood the defiant tenderness of the lines. I love it, I love it, and who shall dare? to chide me for loving the old armchair. I fear the horticultural side of this volume did not interest me, but this sweetly sad poem tinged even the gaudy pictures of prodigious plums and shining apples with a literary glamour. The preposterously plump cattle probably affected me as only another form of romantic fiction. The volume also had a pleasant smell, not so fine an odor as the Bible, but so delectable that I love to bury my nose in its opened pages. What caused this odor I cannot tell. Perhaps it had been used to press flowers or sprigs of sweet fern. Harriet's devotion to literature, like my own, was a nuisance. If my mother wanted a pan of chips, she had to wrench one of us from a book or tear us from a paper. If she pasted up a section of Harper's Weekly behind the washstand in the kitchen, I immediately discovered a special interest in that number, and, likely enough, forgot to wash myself. When mother saw this, as of course she very soon did, she turned the paper upside down, and thereafter accused me, with some justice, of standing on my head in order to continue my tale. In fact, she often said, it is easier for me to do my errands myself 
than to get either of you young ones to move. The first school which we attended was held in a neighboring farmhouse, and there is very little to tell concerning it, but at seven I began to go to the public school in Onalaska, and memory becomes definite, for the wide river which came silently out of the unknown north, carrying endless millions of pine logs, and the clamor of saws in the island mills, and especially the men walking the rolling logs with pike-poles in their hands, filled me with a wordless joy. To be one of these brave and graceful drivers seemed almost as great an honor as to be a captain in the army. Some of the boys of my acquaintance were sons of these hardy boomsmen, and related wonderful stories of their father's exploits, stories which we gladly believed. We all intended to be rivermen when we grew up. The quiet water below the booms harbored enormous fish at that time, and some of the male citizens who were too lazy to work in the mills got an easy living by capturing catfish, and when in liquor, joined the rivermen in their drunken phrase. My father's tales of the exploits of some of these redoubtable villains filled my mind with mingled admiration and terror. No one used the pistol, however, and very few the knife. Physical strength counted. Foot and fist were the weapons which ended each contest, and no one was actually slain in these meetings of rival crews. In the midst of this tumult, surrounded by this coarse, unthinking life, my grandmother Garland's home stood, a serene small sanctuary of lofty womanhood, a temple of New England virtue. From her and from my great-aunt Bridges, who lived in St. Louis, I received my first literary instruction, a partial offset to the vulgar yet heroic influence of the raftsmen and mill-hands. The schoolhouse, a wooden two-story building, occupied an unkempt lot some distance back from the river, and near a group of high sand-dunes which possessed a sinister allurement to me. They had a mysterious desert quality, a flavor as of camels and Arabs. Once you got over behind them, it seemed as if you were in another world, a far-off, arid land, where no water ran, and only sere, sharp-edged grasses grew. Some of these mounds were miniature peaks of clear sand, so steep and dry that you could slide all the way down from top to bottom, and do no harm to your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. On rainy days you could dig caves in their sides. But the mills and the log booms were, after all, much more dramatic, and we never failed to hurry away to the river if we had half an hour to spare. The drivers, so brave and skilled, so graceful, held us in breathless admiration as they leaped from one rolling log to another, or walked the narrow wooden bridges above the deep and silently sweeping waters. The piles of slabs, the mounds of sawdust, the intermittent, ferocious snarl of the saws, the slap of falling lumber, the never-ending fires eating up the refuse, all these sights and sounds made a return to school difficult. Even the life around the threshing machine seemed a little tame in comparison with the life of the booms. We were much at the Greens, our second-door neighbors to the south, and the doings of the menfolks fill large space in my memory. Ed, the oldest of the boys, 
a man of twenty-three or four, was as prodigious in his way as my uncle David. He was mighty with the axe. His deeds as a rail-splitter rivaled those of Lincoln. The number of cords of wood he could split in a single day was beyond belief. It was either seven or eleven, I forget which. I am perfectly certain of the number of buckwheat pancakes he could eat, for I kept count on several occasions. Once he ate nine, the size of a dinner plate, together with a suitable number of sausages. But what would you expect of a man who could whirl a six-pound axe all day, in a desperate attack on the forest, without once looking at the sun or pausing for breath? However, he fell short of my hero in other ways. He looked like a fat man, and his fiddling was only middling. Therefore, notwithstanding his prowess with the axe and the maul, he remained subordinate to David, and though they never came to a test of strength, we were perfectly sure that David was the finer man. His supple grace and his unconquerable pride made him altogether admirable. Dan, the youngest of the Greens, was a boy about three years my senior, and a most attractive lad. I met him some years ago in California, a successful doctor, and we talked of the days when I was his slave, and humbly carried his powder-horn and game-bag. Ellis Usher, who lived in Sand Lake, and often hunted with Dan, is an editor in Milwaukee, and one of the political leaders of his state. In those days he had a small opinion of me. No doubt I was a nuisance. The road which led from our farm to the village school crossed a sandy ridge, and often in June our path became so hot that it burned the soles of our feet. If we went out of the road there were sandburrs, and we lost a great deal of time picking needles from our toes. How we hated those sandburrs! However, on these sand barrens many luscious strawberries grew. They were not large, but they gave off a delicious odor, and it sometimes took us a long time to reach home. There was a recognized element of danger in this road. Wildcats were plentiful around the limestone cliffs, and bears had been seen under the oak trees. In fact, a place on the hillside was often pointed out with awe as the place where Al Randall killed the bear. Our way led past the village cemetery also, and there was to me something vaguely awesome in that silent bivouac of the dead. Among the other village boys in the school were two lads named Gallagher, one of whom, whose name was Matt, became my daily terror. He was two years older than I, and had all of a city gamin's cunning and self-command. At every intermission he sidled close to me, walking round me feeling my arms, and making much of my muscle. Sometimes he came behind and lifted me to see how heavy I was, or called attention to my strong hands and wrists, insisting with the most terrifying candor of conviction, I'm sure you can lick me. We never quite came to combat, and finally he gave up this baiting for a still more exquisite method of torment. My sister and I possessed a dog named Rover, a meek little yellow, bow-legged cur of mongrel character, but with the frankest, gentlest, and sweetest face, it seemed to us, in all the world. He was not allowed to accompany us to school, 
and scarcely ever left the yard, but Matt Gallagher, in some way, discovered my deep affection for this pet, and thereafter played upon my fears with a malevolence which knew no mercy. One day he said, Me and Brother Dan are going over to your place to get a calf that's in your pasture. We're going to get excused fifteen minutes early. We'll get there before you do, and we'll fix that dog of yours. There won't be nothing left of him but a grease spot when we are done with him. These words, spoken probably in jest, instantly filled my heart with an agony of fear. I saw in imagination just how my little playmate would come running out to meet his cruel foes, his brown eyes beaming with love and trust. I saw them hiding sharp stones behind their backs while snapping their left-hand fingers to lure him within reach and then I saw them drive their murdering weapons at his head. I could think of nothing else. I could not study. I could only sit and stare out the window, with tears running down my cheeks, until at last the teacher, observing my distress, inquired, What is the matter? And I, not knowing how to enter upon so terrible a tale, whined out, I'm sick. I want to go home. You may go, said the teacher kindly. Snatching my cap from behind the desk, where I had concealed it at recess, I hurried out and away over the sandlot on the shortest way home. No stopping now for burrs. I ran like one pursued. I shall never forget, as long as I live, the pain, the panic, the frenzy of that race against time. The hot sand burned my feet, my side ached, my mouth was dry and yet I ran on and on and on, looking back from moment to moment, seeing pursuers in every moving object. At last I came in sight of home, and Rover frisked out to me, just as I had expected him to do, his tail wagging, his gentle eyes smiling up at me. Gasping, unable to utter a word, I frantically dragged the dog into the house and shut the door. "'What is the matter?' asked my mother. I could not at the moment explain even to her what had threatened me, but her calm sweet words at last gave my story vent. Out it came in torrential flow. Why, you poor child, she said. They were only fooling. They wouldn't dare to hurt your dog. This was probably true. Matt had spoken without any clear idea of the torture he was inflicting. It is often said, how little is required to give a child joy. But men, and women too, sometimes forget how little it takes to give a child pain. End of chapter 3